are listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the first chapter of the book of Revelation. And tonight, we're going to be reading verses 12 through 16. That's Revelation 1, verses 12 through 16, and you'll find this on page 1028 of the Pew Bible. Twelve through 16, excuse me. Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 16. Hear the word of God. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Well, as we have seen, the Apostle John has been exiled on the island of Patmos. He is in the spirit on the Lord's day. And he tells us that a loud trumpet-like voice commissions him to write what he sees in a book. Then he turns to see the voice, and what he saw was awesome and unexpected. Standing before him in the midst of seven golden lampstands was the glorified Christ. And as Jesus himself says, the lampstands represent the churches. And he is in the midst as one like a son of man. And it reminds me of that promise that he made when he commissioned the church, I'll be with you always. He's with us in the midst. And of course, this vision that John has harkens back to the vision of Daniel the prophet who witnessed the awesome glory of the pre-incarnate Christ. He says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion. Later, Daniel again saw a man whose description was very much like the description of Christ we have here. Daniel tells us the man is clothed with a linen and gold belt. His body is like beryl, his face is like lightning, his eyes are like flaming torches, and his legs and arms are like burnished bronze. And Daniel said the sound of the man's words were like the sound of a multitude. And of course, as you can already see, these features agree to a great extent with those that John saw on Patmos. So it seems clear to me that both Daniel and John were seeing the same person. Daniel, the pre-incarnate Christ. John, the exalted heavenly Christ. 
And these features that they see are not meant to reveal an appearance, but to convey attributes. You see, to Greeks, beauty was a vision seen. But to the Jews, beauty was an impression made. Bowman argues that they found meaning and enjoyed beauty more by the ear than by the eye. And this is written in the language of the Greeks, but of course, as we've seen, it's expressed in the thought of the Jews. When any kind of artist attempts to paint on a canvas what's been revealed here in words, it's a grotesque image. Glowing feet, sword coming out of the mouth, and so forth. These are meant to be visible signs designed to express invisible realities. They reveal to the church who Jesus is and what he's able to do. For a small persecuted group of Christians, of course, this would have been greatly comforting. Their situation seemed hopeless. They were weak, frightened, threatened, And here is their risen, reigning Savior in all of his majesty and splendor to watch over them. And our aim this evening is simply to understand more clearly the significance of each one of these descriptions. So we begin with the great high priest. He says, one like a son of man was clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. And of course, this sacred clothing clearly identified him as the high priest of heaven. The Old Testament high priest, you'll remember, was distinguished as such by striking sacerdotal vestments. Exodus 28, God says to Moses, You shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother for glory and for beauty. And they used only the richest materials and the most skilled artisans to craft them. It was a tunic of fine linen, elegantly embroidered, reaching the feet, And the robe of the ephod was woven in blue with ornamentation on its borders. And a blue, purple, scarlet, gold sash passed several times around the high priest's body. And in Exodus 39, it says, These are the finely worked garments for ministering in the holy place. There was a breastplate covering the chest with the names of the twelve tribes engraved. So when John saw the risen Christ, Wearing the high priestly garments, the significance of his clothing was instantly recognizable. These were high priestly clothes of him who freed us from our sins by his blood. So he's not only the reigning king, but he is also the exalted high priest who saves his people to the uttermost. Hebrews 8, the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted, who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. The Old Testament priests had to trim and tend the lamps. They had to refill them with oil and relight them with fire. And this is exactly what our great high priest Jesus does through his spirit and his word. He is with his church always, reigning in her midst, caring for his people, He knows the condition of each one, both physically and spiritually, and he blesses accordingly. And having sacrificed himself at the cross for us, he pleads for us at the throne. He appears in the presence of his Father with our names engraved upon his heart. 
And these glorious attributes are those by which he saves us to the uttermost. So first of all, he is the great high priest. But then secondly, we find the wisdom of Christ in verse 14. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. And of course, in the Bible, white hair is the emblem of age and honor and wisdom. It's worthy of respect. Proverbs 16.31, the hoary head is a crown of glory. And our forefathers, as you might know, used to powder their hair white and wore white wigs to signify wisdom. It's not as if Christ's hair was white with age because he is eternal and immutable. His exceedingly white and snow-like hair is a symbol of infinite wisdom. Daniel 7, the ancient of days took his seat, his clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. God surrounds himself, not with various colors, but with radiant white light. And his beauty is that of holiness, and his throne is that of righteousness, and his crown is one of purity, and his visage is that of infinite wisdom. And this is what is symbolically represented by the white hair of Christ. Christ is not only wise, but in fact, we're told by Paul that he himself is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And we serve and belong to an eternal Christ whose wisdom has no bounds. He was there when the earth's foundation was laid, when heaven was stretched out like a tent, when the morning stars sang together and when the sons of God shouted for joy. He received Abel's worship and affirmed Abraham's faith and led Moses through the Red Sea and appeared to Joshua at Jericho and enabled David to slay Goliath. We have reason to rejoice in our Redeemer who is infinitely wise. Then we have the knowledge of Christ. John tells us <coughs> that his eyes were like a flame of fire. And those bright, fiery eyes represent his holy, searching, omniscient gaze. With his piercing vision, Jesus is able to see all things, even the secrets of your heart. And as he who walks in the midst of the churches, he knows his own assemblies. The constant refrain in each of the seven letters will be, I know your works. He's able to scrutinize both the creed and the conduct of his own people. In his letter to Thyatira, his fiery eyes discerned the hypocrisy of that congregation. It was a libertine church, both weak and irresolute in its discipline. They were willing to tolerate that woman Jezebel and her immorality and the deep things of Satan that she was teaching. And so Jesus says, I'll strike her children dead and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. He knows everything. Nothing escapes his scrutiny. He is omniscient. His vision is clear, his knowledge is infinite, and his perception is absolutely infallible, and he will weigh with perfect impartiality the misconduct of his enemies. Every single act of cruelty or misbehavior has been written in his book. And against all that is evil and unholy, he will direct his holy avenging wrath. 
And with that same searching gaze, he will behold the saints with tender mercy. With those of broken and contrite heart, he is the tenderest of friends. With those who are lowly in spirit and grieve over their own sin, he is both kind and gentle. Never was a tear shed by a believer, but the penetrating eye of Christ saw it. And toward the Christian, he has no anger, no wrath, no vengeance, just mercy and grace. But then we come to the judgment of Christ in verse 15, where it says, His feet were like the burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And the feet are those bodily members which, with which we execute movement. Our feet enable us to carry out our plans and to fulfill all of our purposes. And with the feet radiant with a fiery glow, Jesus accomplished his greatest desire. Beaten and bloody, those feet trod the Via Dolorosa, the way of sorrow, the cross. They led him to drink the very dregs of that cup which was filled by wrath given to him by his father. And thus into the furnace of affliction he went to bear the full weight of God's wrath on our behalf. And those precious feet enabled our high priest to accomplish our salvation as he carried that cross all the way to Calvary. Most of the way. And he will come again with bronze feet heated in a furnace to a golden glow. And he will come, we're told, to tread the great winepress of the wrath of God. He will trample underfoot all of his enemies with invincible white-hot feet. And his judgment is invincible. He will judge the earth in righteousness, or as Pat or Elder Gilliland read, with equity. And per his promise, he will crush the serpent's head with feet glowing with hot vengeance. Then we move on to the majesty of Christ. John says his voice was like the roar of many waters. And if you've ever been by a waterfall, you know the deafening sound of many waters. Few things, I believe, are as imposing as the incessant, relentless crash of cascading water. The Old Testament likens the approach of God with the same kind of description. In Ezekiel 43, it says this, The glory of the God of Israel was coming, and the sound was like the sound of many waters. John heard something imposing like a great flood, the sound of the Almighty. And in his vision, it was the majestic, awe-inspiring voice of the Most High. You remember Psalm 29. We've sung it many times. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. And so diffusive that it's heard in all places from any direction by every person. So powerful and overwhelming that nothing is able to stand in opposition to the voice of God. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars, said the psalmist, flashes forth flames of fire, shakes the wilderness. That voice created the cosmos and convicts the world and effectually calls sinners. That was the powerful, awe-inspiring, majestic voice that John heard, and it was Christ's. The falls of Niagara, they can fill us with wonder, <coughs> but they are nothing compared to his voice. Hearing the tsunami that struck the coast of Japan must have been terrifying, but that was nothing compared to this voice. 
Many disregard his voice because of their self-imposed deafness. But the day is coming when Christ will descend with a shout that nobody can ignore. It will be the shout of a king, the cry of a mighty conqueror, and the yell of a victorious monarch. But then we go to the sovereignty of Christ. Verse 16 says, in his right hand he held seven stars. And of course, later he tells us that the angels of the seven churches are represented by the stars. The emperor Domitian claimed, history tells us, to be divine. And he claimed to be in control of the seven planets. Christ dismisses these false claims and he asserts his own sovereign control. Before his eye and close to his heart are the seven churches of humble, persecuted saints. And in the congregations, he appoints ministers and positions his beloved people, and all of them together are like stars situated to reflect his glorious light. They shine the truth of his word, and in their deeds, they show that their Father is in heaven above. Christ exercises absolute control over the churches to which we belong. Nothing in or about the church is outside of his sovereign control, or his interest, by the way. Providence controls everything in general, but the congregations in particular. And Jesus Christ rules over his church. He consoles her, he rebukes her, he warns her, he sustains her. We're told by the apostle that God put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. But then there's the truth of Christ. It says from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And all authority has been given to Jesus who speaks with invincible power. His voice reaches the ends of the earth and is relentless in addressing men and women and children. Come to me, he says. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And throughout this gospel age, King Jesus is holding out the scepter of mercy. Sinners need only touch the top, trust in Christ, and they may live. This is the standing invitation of Christ Jesus who offers salvation to everyone. And the word of the Lord is powerful, as we said, and his truth is marching on. He tells us, my word that goes out from my mouth shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Why is it two-edged? Why is it a two-edged sword? Well, because a two-edged sword cuts both ways, the truth of justice and the truth of mercy. It performs a twofold function of performing surgery or executing judgment. The word of Christ is acute and piercing. It can divide with pinpoint precision. We're told that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. He's able to cut through the natural man's pride and to bring him to repentance. He can discern the hidden thoughts of the wicked and he can cut them down in judgment. And either way, that sword will accomplish its purposes 
in the lives and hearts of human beings. But then we come to the glory of Christ at the end of verse 16. His face was like the sun shining in full strength. And here the portrait of the risen Christ culminates with a stunning display of the divine splendor. Christ's radiant face is the center of glory and it's likened to the noonday sun. Its brightness can neither be measured nor endured by mere mortals. John himself, you'll notice, could not even gaze at it, but he fell at Christ's feet as a dead man. He saw the Savior's unveiled majesty in all of its resplendent glory. And there is nothing in this world that can match the beauty and the excellence of Christ. Rest assured, his countenance is like the sun, which sheds life-sustaining rays over the earth. His smile makes the heart glad. His influence enables the soul to grow. When the head of the church appears, all of his adopted children will appear with him. And we're told, beloved, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We'll be like him in holiness, in honor, in glory, completely transformed. And because of our union with Christ, we're told the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. In the meantime, you and I wait in faith and hope and with earnest longing for the day. So here we've seen the wisdom, the knowledge, the judgment, the majesty, the sovereignty, the truth, and the glory of the risen Christ. Let there be no doubt tonight in anybody's mind as to the incomparable excellence of Jesus Christ. William Hendrickson is right. He says the entire picture taken as a whole is symbolical of Christ, the Holy One, coming to purge his churches and to punish those who are persecuting his elect. You know something, in him alone, you and I find true happiness. And in him alone, we can enjoy unsearchable riches of glory. So tonight, together, let's recognize how the things of this world are as rubbish compared to him. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ, said the apostle. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I think meditating upon John's description here in chapter 1 will help you and I better appreciate the Savior. It'll help, if necessary, to reject everything, to sell all, and to buy that pearl of great price. Because Satan, mind you, knows how important it is for you and I to appreciate the glory of Christ. That's why he tries to obscure it, to eclipse it, to wipe it from remembrance. And our mission, we've said it publicly, is to exalt him and proclaim him and to treasure him above all things. John's vision of the Christ in his glorified state is designed to help us do that very thing. So let's renew our love for Jesus, who alone is sufficient for our salvation. As it says in Ecclesiastes 12, as the ladies have finished their book, remember also your creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come, 
and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the windows grow dim and the door shuts and the silver cord is snapped and the golden bowl is broken. Marshall says, there is nothing between ourselves and death besides the breath in our nostrils. That's it. It's never too late to believe in and to appreciate and to rely upon the Lord Jesus for eternal life. He freely offers a pardon and acceptance to the worst of men and to the chief of sinners. You may come to him as you are, but you will not stay the same. You will be transformed. And through Jesus Christ, God will justify the ungodly and he'll bestow the gift, the glorious gift of eternal life. The Old Testament manslayer fled at once to the city of refuge so that he could escape the manslayer or the avenger. Tonight, we can flee to Christ so as to escape God's avenging wrath. And it's my prayer, and I'm sure it's yours too, that everybody here would find refuge in him. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are stunned by the revelation that you've given to us of the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his glory and his various attributes, according to which he is able to protect and preserve his church and to save his people to the uttermost. We thank you for this wonderful vision and for the opportunity we've had to reflect and meditate upon it. May it serve to strengthen our faith and our resolve to live as followers of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.